Bojo Anin. Hi, I'm Serene Fox, and this is Into the Anthropocene, the podcast where we talk to smart and interesting people tackling one of the most urgent issues of our time, our impact on the planet. We'd like to acknowledge that we're recording this podcast on the land of the Mississaugas of New Credit and the traditional territories of the Wendat, Anishinaabe, and Haudenosaunee Nations. Last time on Into the Anthropocene, our guests talked to us about environmental racism and decolonizing the Anthropocene. You can't say we're all in this together when we aren't, <laughs> when people don't have the same access to water and to housing and to food and, and to the safety uh, uh, that other people uh, take for granted. Today's episode, Into the City, Reckoning with the Urban Anthropocene. Around 55% of the world's population lives in an urban area. In Canada, that stat is much higher. As of 2016, over 80% of Canadians live in cities. Remember science writer Gaia Vince from episode two? Here's her take on cities. Cities are a, a fundamental part of the Anthropocene because they are the most artificial environment. They are entirely human habitats, human-made habitats. We've re-sculpted the earth and we've made artificial versions of everything. So we may have lived in caves, we've now made our artificial caves. In the comfort of our artificial caves, we rely on fossil fuels for transportation, energy, and massive building developments. Between this intense draining of natural resources and the skyrocketing global population, there is no question that cities are a major contributor to the Anthropocene. First up, Julia Langer. She's the CEO of the Atmospheric Fund right here in Toronto. The Atmospheric Fund invests in urban solutions to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and air pollution. Later in the program, we'll explore the issues of urban indigeneity, and you'll hear from Susan Blight, co-creator of the Toronto Street Takeover Project, Ogima Mikana. Here's my talk with Julia. So happy to be here with you, Julia. Let's talk about this word, Anthropocene. When was the first time you heard that term, and what does it mean to you? I did start hearing it in the context of the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, so this is a, a body of scientists from across the, the world who have been looking at climate change causes, impacts, uh, mitigation, adaptation. Um, and then in the context of the Inconvenient Truth film, you know, it's sort of a nerdy term, but it spoke to a really uh, important concept and that you know you need to label it you you need to be able to talk about these things in a, in a way that shakes people up so it's kind of human nature isn't it that people don't respond until it's right in your face and those risks turn into not just sort of something that you read about but a financial risk and cost so it's unfortunate that that's sort of the way humans operate, but you know we're seeing that in play right now. So why is it so important for our listeners to understand the effects of climate and air pollution, especially in the cities? And what is the relationship between cities and climate change? Well, we are a very urban population in Canada and increasingly around the world. So... Um, you know, 80% of Canadians live in cities. 
and uh, 50% of our emissions that cause climate change in our Canadian emissions originate in cities. So uh, it's really just math. Uh, we are part of the problem, um, but as I trust we're going to talk about, cities can also be very much a part of the solution. Are we on our way to becoming a low-carbon city? Toronto is a very interesting uh, case study in uh, climate action because through serendipity, strategic thinking, really interesting individuals, we've had the opportunity to um, to experiment, to put some things into action, to you know, drive some changes. And, and so today, City of Toronto's emissions are 24% lower than they were in 1990. And look at how our city has grown in that time. So what that says at the meta level is that we have decoupled growth from carbon. And that is in the end, that's ultimately the metric of what we need to see all over is that decoupling so that we can actually have, you know, uh, nice lives and a nice environment and an economy you know, that works without the carbon. Why are investors like the Atmospheric Fund campaigning to phase out fossil fuels like coal? What contributed to that is also a very important story. A lot of it was getting rid of the, the coal plants because that's where Toronto's electricity comes from the provincial grid. So it, so the Atmospheric Fund was the biggest and, and longest funder of the campaign to phase out coal. Why? Because we follow the carbon. When you get rid of those coal plants, we reduced our carbon emissions from 26% of the total emissions to almost zero from electricity. Julia helped draft the Generation Energy Report released in June of this year. It includes four defined pathways to a sustainable future. One, energy efficiency. Two, clean power or electrification. Three, switching to renewable fuels. And four, clean oil and gas. And in Toronto in particular, we are electricity constrained. So the distributed opportunity and solar prices are going down, down, down. Uh, uh, offshore wind, is viable all around the world and maybe an opportunity for us. So, you know, I think if you focus on the solutions and the multiple benefits that they provide, electrification means more renewable electricity and, and using that to, uh, to reduce the natural gas we use for heating and the gasoline and diesel we use for transportation. And then we've got a huge natural resource base uh, you know, biomass and turning that into renewable fuels. What's biomass? Any organic matter that can be transformed into fuel. Garbage counts. And this comes to cities as well because we've got a lot of garbage and you can turn that into renewable fuels. So we, we really looked at the opportunities and then of course, you know, cleaning up the oil and gas sector to the extent possible as we sort of transition uh, is, a, is a key piece of the puzzle. So it was really um, a solutions focused uh, exercise. Um, it is ambitious. The federal government can write these reports and they received our report, but in the end, it has to be at the provinces and the utilities and the cities and the people that implement. What are some of the smart climate investments you would recommend to government? Mm -hmm. Government doesn't need a return. 
private sector does need a return. So let's let's team up and and share that space. Mm-hmm. And I think you're talking a lot about large scale investments too. Um, what can all three levels of government do uh, in terms of small climate investments? Oh, I don't think this is limited to large investments at all. So when you think about cities and where do the emissions come from? So the follow the carbon approach, they come from buildings, 50%. Transportation, 40% or so. And the balance being from waste. So when we put garbage in landfills. Um, From buildings, uh, the emissions are going down slowly. We need to accelerate that through much more investment in uh, in retrofits, and that mean and ma- making sure that new buildings are are super efficient and and net zero carbon. But you know, a, a small building like a single family home requires a small investment, time multiplied times millions. Whereas the large buildings might need a bigger investment, but there's only you know tens of thousands of those. You know, so so really, you go from small to large. So transportation, the problem is those emissions keep going up. And those are micro investments in a way because you're, you know, somebody's individual car. It's the decisions you make about your car or whether you even have a car or going to sort of get on transit or get yourself an electric bike or a pedal bike. Those are really micro sized investments. You have to make millions and millions and millions of those. And so how to incentivize and and prod people to make those investments versus, you know, cities building transit. So it's a a full spectrum. It's not just about the carbon. It's about how comfortable is your home? You know, is it drafty? How's how's the air quality inside? When you do a retrofit, you can improve all of those things. we have congestion problems in in the city. And so more transit, more active transportation is also good for our health. And it, you know, it actually can be cheaper. So let's look at the, you know, the dynamics of this, see where we all gain. uh, And, and then how do you actually implement becomes the, the question, not if or why or, but how. This is something I think you've already touched on, but we're asking all of our guests, what can be done? What can everyday people living in cities like Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal um, do to help? And how are cities uniquely positioned to contribute to a good Anthropocene? I don't want to blame the consumer because you know sometimes we don't have many choices um, but certainly the choices that you can make uh, in terms of you know the fuel efficiency of your car or retrofitting your home or um, uh, the the amount of meat that you do or don't eat uh, you know those are those are certainly pieces of the puzzle and because people don't understand the Anthropocene don't understand where carbon comes from they'll oppose medium density development when that's exactly what we need rather than sprawl right so maybe if we contextualize that a bit more if we sort of help people understand you know why why were the density of our cities or is needs to change or why we actually need transit instead of roads it's for eliminating congestion it's for creating density and therefore ridership it's because you can then walk to work and be healthier and it's also about carbon reduction maybe all together 
then everybody will sort of understand. I agree with you, especially as someone who lives in the middle of the Greenbelt. I've realized that when you can actually see the farmland going, when you see the sprawl, and then when you feel the effects of it, I absolutely have just seen the effects in the last couple of years, um, that you are motivated in a different way. And then I have a whole other list of motivations. But I do think there's something to be said about uh, a tangible expression of how you are affected. Well, this comes back to, you know, the first point, which is that people tend to not respond until there's crisis, until it's really in their face. And, you know, as your as your program is showing, you know, we are in this Anthropocene. It's in our face and it is incumbent on all of us in whatever way we can. And every person, you know, and, and business and, and institution has a different way, but to to do to do what we can in our own way. If you're interested in learning more about Julia's work with the Atmospheric Fund and their various projects, check out the podcast episode description for links with more information. We can't talk about cities and environmental impact without talking about colonialism. Anthropocene is all about human impact and the change we humans have brought about. But we know the Anthropocene impacts people differently and has the potential to erase stories of indigenous populations. Colonial legacies are in place in cities all around the world, from Lagos to Mumbai to right here in Toronto. As we discussed in episode three, Whose Earth Is It Anyway? The Anthropocene doesn't always take into account the dispossessed and the marginalized. Our next guest, Susan Blight, Interdisciplinary Anishinaabe artist, or artivist, and Indigenous Student Life Coordinator at the University of Toronto, uses language as a tool to highlight Indigenous voices in urban spaces. She talks to us about making her mark on the streets of Toronto, what the term urban indigeneity means to her, and more. Here's Susan. Bonjour, Ani, Mekinak and Dotem, my name is Susan Blight, that's my English name. I'm Anishinaabe from Kuchiching First Nation, a citizen of the Anishinaabe Nation of Treaty Number 3. And I currently live in Toronto. I work at the University of Toronto as the Indigenous Student Life Coordinator. And outside of my 9 to 5 job, I'm also an artist uh, and a PhD student in social justice education at OISE. And how is Susan using art as a way to change how we think about cities? Here's what she did in Toronto. Or Takaranto. I did co-found a project uh, called the Ogima Mikina Project, which is an artist collective with Hayden King in January of 2013. And that artist collective um, is made up of Anishinaabe uh, artists, activists, and scholars. And what we do is we work to kind of reclaim uh, through our language, Anishinaabe language, uh, the, the kind of streets and landmarks of urban areas in Anishinaabe territory. And that's kind of what I've been focusing on uh, for the last five years. And it's really a project that um, seeks to kind of grapple with the question of how one brings together uh, art and activism uh, in urban areas particularly. Ogama Makana is an almost literal translation of Queen Street. This is the first street where Susan, Hayden, and other members of the collective made their mark. Queen Street is a major artery running east to west across Toronto, just over 15 kilometers long. Susan explains the concept behind the project. Ogima Mikana um, was our first action, and I call it an action, um, 
because it was sort of a uh, it's sort of an interventionist um, project in the sense that we sought out to create our own versions of um, street signs and and covering the official city street sign with an Anishinaabe version. And so our first action was in January 2013, as I mentioned, on Queen Street West at McCall. And it was just, uh, it was a, very much a direct translation in the sense that Ogima is a leader, like a queen, I guess, and Mikana is a road. It kind of indigenized the concept because the concept moved from that of a monarch monarchy um, to a more indigenous notion of what a leader of the people would do. And we decided to name our project after that, and we've been working uh, ever since. And they didn't stop with Queen Street West. Torontonians will be familiar with the Davenport and Spadina intersection. Here's Susan explaining the historical significance of this intersection and why it was long overdue for an intervention. We had done a lot of research around the history of Toronto, the Indigenous history, both after contact and before, uh, of places that were relevant, some, you know, spiritually symbolic, um, politically important uh, to Anishinaabe people. So just as an example, uh, you know, a lot of people do, do know that the that Davenport Road is a very old Indigenous trail. It's one of the, I believe it might be the longest in-use trail in Canada, Was has been used for 10,000 years by Indigenous peoples as a really important route uh, linking um linking rivers and and Lake Ontario. The other thing that is important about that is that it sits at the top of Spadina. So Spadina, as we understand it, is an anglicization of an Anishinaabe verb, Ishpadana, which means to be on a high hill. And if you stand at the base of Ishpadana near Lake Ontario, you'll notice that it does go uphill, that there's a gradual, uh, you know, a gradual incline towards Davenport. And the reason that it was important to Anishinaabe people is that it was a high point at which they could camp and watch and make sure and sort of monitor the area and make sure that there were no enemies approaching. It was a good vantage point for them to camp and to keep themselves and their families safe. And so we really considered the corner of Davenport and Spadina now to be a very important intersection for Anishinaabe people historically and contemporary. So when, when we changed the street signs on that corner, we changed them to Ishbadana, and then Davenport to Gete Onagaming, which is, means at the old portage. Renaming as reclaiming, and using language as a tool to accomplish it. We asked Susan about what the term urban indigeneity means to her. How does she situate it in the work that she does? I think historically, um, and also to a certain extent in a contemporary um, sense, I think Indigenous peoples have been sort of symbolically constructed as, as a people of the past, um, as a people who are somewhat out of place in an urban area. And I think that that is a kind of essentialist notion of Indigenous peoples that really harms us. And I think it's really linked to our dehumanization and I think that the state has a vested interest in dehumanizing us because um, it's a lot easier to take land from people who you don't see as human. I connect urban indigeneity to a kind of resistance to assimilation because if you look at, say, the history of urban powwows or the history of 
urban ceremonies. These are things that have existed and are existing and are ways of sort of enacting and embodying your indigeneity within the city. Now that's not to say that there aren't complex um, problems, challenges of connecting to land and, and connecting to ceremony and those are things that we are actively working on and have to be and have to be working on. Um, but I think that there is a, a kind of strength in challenging the notion that, that Indigenous peoples don't belong in cities. And so our project, Ogimamikina, really kind of grapples with that idea. I hope that our work sort of stresses that it's not impossible uh, for Anishinaabe people to make life in cities without abandoning our language, our culture, our epistemologies, or our identities as Anishinaabek. So that, but at the same time, also still recognizing the kind of terror that settler colonialism has enacted on Indigenous bodies, minds, and spirits. There is a tendency to connect Indigenous dispossession with more rural areas of the country. But the city of Toronto is very much layered with its own complex history of dispossession and settlement. Susan breaks it down. I think it's important to understand that Toronto is comprised of settlement, you know, layers and layers of settlement on Indigenous land. And that Indigenous land was not only inhabited by Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe people, but there were burial grounds, there were ancestors buried in places where there are now condos. Um, there are places where those burial mounds were dug up um, and the bones were ground up and put into mortar that made some of the buildings where the University of Toronto now stands. So when we talk about Toronto being built on the bodies of our ancestors, that is a very real thing. It's not an overstatement whatsoever. But is it all gone? There are oaks that are standing at Queen's Park right now that were specifically planted by the Haudenosaunee for specific reasons and that they exist and they predate Toronto. I think it's important to know that the Black Oak Savannah in High Park was um, also put there and maintained by Indigenous peoples as a way of, um, is, is a kind of stewardship of the land that led to, um, you know, the ability of caribou to come through and other creatures to come through and made the land actually more hospitable and more um, abundant. You know, everybody jokes about raccoons and, and like Toronto raccoons, but they are our kin, they are here. They've made lives in the city just as hawks and pigeons and other animals, you know, much like indigenous people have managed to make a life in the city where they might not have 500 years ago. I do think the city has not done a great job of acknowledging its Indigenous history, I will say that. That there has been, in some areas, complete erasure of that which existed before. But even with all of that state intervention and power attempting to erase Indigenous presence, it has not done that completely. If you want to learn something, first, you must learn this. That is the slogan that appeared on an Ogamamakana project billboard in Parkdale. Thank you, Susan Blight, Hayden King, and all the other members of the Ogamamakana Collective 
for using your voices to restore and reclaim indigeneity in the city of Toronto or Toronto. If you're interested in learning more about the project, visit the link in the podcast episode description. To close out this episode, let's hear from Gaia again and the potential of cities in the Anthropocene. Anthropocene? Anthropocene. Still working on it. What we've done by making cities is made things that that really do last for millennia. You know, we can look back. There were Roman remains running very near where I live. You know, we can see signs of things that were made to be permanent. I mean, permanent is relative on a geological scale, but they are still, they are not temporary in the same way that a termite mound is temporary. So we've re-sculpted the environment in that way. But I think cities, in a way, also offer humanity their greatest hope in the Anthropocene because they are some of the most efficient ways of living. Guy Vince talking about the possibilities of efficient city living. Can cities really offer the greatest hope in the Anthropocene? I think our guest today offered us more than hope. They offered us solutions, knowledge, and art that will make us think twice about the spaces we occupy. Chimi Gwich, thank you, Julia Langer and Susan Blight for joining us. Next time on Into the Anthropocene, On the Brink, Living Things, us humans and the animals we share the planet with. What are we doing to ourselves? And what are we doing to millions of species? You'll hear from Pulitzer Prize winning author and New Yorker staff writer, Elizabeth Colbert. Lots and lots and lots of different kinds of creatures find their home in a coral reef. So when you're on a reef, a healthy reef, a functioning reef, you know, you're seeing an amazing array of of fish and crustaceans and octopuses and sharks. It's amazingly full of life. Um, Really the most extraordinary sight, I think, that that a person can see. Dr. Winnie Kiru of the Elephant Protection Initiative. Nobody's going to kill elephants for ivory if there's nowhere to sell it. So we think that there's a whole global platform that was opened up because of this uh, very provoking gesture uh, by Kenya. And poet and professor Adam Dickinson. So I devised a project whereby I would uh, decided to test myself for chemicals and microbes. How did they get into me? Where are they from? What kinds of biological properties and effects do they have? I hope you'll join us. Into the Anthropocene, Our Impact on Earth was produced by the Art Gallery of Ontario in Toronto to go along with the exhibition Anthropocene, featuring the works of Edward Brutinsky, Jennifer Bachual, and Nicolas de Pensier. The exhibition is on at the Art Gallery of Ontario and the National Gallery of Canada from the end of September 2018 until early 2019. For more information, visit our website at www.ago.ca.